Good evening, or maybe it's your morning. Maybe it's your third shift. Hell, who knows? But whatever time zone or work shift you might find yourselves in, welcome. We are the beacon of truth leading to the enlightenment of the masses. We are the voice of Vox Free in's mouth, 665.66UHMR Camrat Radio. Well, we're certainly the beacon of something, Gabo. I'll tell you what. In other news, Hivers. The Cult War seems to be cooling off after the Arbides forces secured the blast skirts between the Midhives and Sublevel 1, trapping them down here with us. Typical. Is that fixing? I mean, sure. I, I... Sounds like same shit, different day. With the Underhive gang still attempting to sort out leadership during this developing crisis, at least for us, we thought it was best to wait out tonight's festivities here at the Hangnail on sublevel 999. Even the cultist seems to be honoring the ceasefire of our little sump-side slice of respite. You know what, man? I feel like, you know, the sump is kind of like, you know, we got sublevels, right? And it's like right. every level you get a different smell. <laughs> and like at 999, it's like, you know, it's almost like a like, like aphrodisiac. What do, what do you call it? It's almost like a... Uh, you know, it's just something special, you know? It's, it's got that little extra, that little sump extra. Yeah, yeah, you know, burns the nostril hairs. <laughs> you think that has something to do with the reason they ain't coming down here? Uh, <laughs> just might. <laughs> Bringing you the very best in hive news, no matter how bleak it might seem, I am your guide through these pathways into darkness, Goblin King. Backed up by the skull-cracking, bare-knuckled truth-sayer himself, Marky. I was going to say, that sounds like Tom. But he ain't here today, <laughs> motherfucker. Hey, you know. Because he's a bitch. A big some, bitch. Sometimes somebody else has to punch for me. That's all I'm saying. And our backup <laughs> and all things long-ranged heavy support is the Laz Cannon Maestro himself, Kev. Kev, uh, how are those two? That answers your question. That's how Welcome to Under the Hive of Madness. We are back to wrap up our coverage on the Gene Stealer Cult Faction with Part 4. Our focus will be a deeper look into how and why the cult is such a threat to humanity specifically and how they organize and spread. I have already brainstormed some ideas on how I'm going to make my cult, and I know that Marky has some delicious tidbits planned out for our next episode where we cover his lore. But what other ideas have the last few episodes kind of inspired in you guys as far as Gene Steeler cults go? It definitely like helped out with the like intricacies of the the faction. Um, just knowing like specific things about each unit, I guess you would say, kind of helps further explain what you would do with that unit, or if you were going to write lore on that specific unit, like you would know that you know the Magus is born. Uh, you know it's chosen from a it's chosen like it's a chosen family i guess of psychers and they gotcha. you know give birth to a fourth generation magus Ma- magus magus like magus it's um, it sounds better than you know ma- I think maggot it, i think you're right though i think it is magus because i think it's supposed to be it like is magus magi yeah yeah it just sounds dumb i like magus <laughs> i like it too it's like ma- majestic mage. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, got that it, it kind of helps, uh, you know, elaborate a little bit more on specific things, specific units. Uh, kind of helps you 
develop them into your own personal lore a little bit easier. Yeah, definitely having the background can help with stuff like that. Kev, you have any ideas on a Gene Steeler cult you would build or still feeling it out? I would just go Red Faction. Ooh, I like that idea. Actually, actually, depending on how much you know about some of the cults that we're going to talk about specifically today, you might, you and I might have a fight on our hands. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash under the hive of madness. And one of the things that we do through our Patreon is a painting contest. We do it four times a year. We give away a really cool nifty statue that we paint up. It is um, a red squig can. You guys have probably heard of red squig before. So it's a uh, just a really cool little trophy. We commissioned an artist to create from us from a bunch of sketches, and uh, we 3D print it and paint it up. But what we have started to do with our painting contests is we have started to compete for in those painting contests as well. And if you're interested in seeing the results of the painting contest, or you're interested in seeing the results of our contribution to the painting contest, you can go over to our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash jimdarkgaming. I will probably drop links to everything that I talk about down in the show notes, but if I forget, just look up Jim Dark Gaming in YouTube and you should be able to find us. You can see our contributions as well. And I am planning on doing a night Gene Steeler cult conversion for our October host challenge. I don't know what you guys are planning on doing, but because I'm doing that and because we've been covering the faction in these last couple of episodes, the wheels have been turning and I've kind of been designing my own splinter cults. And um, when we get there a little bit later on in this episode, I will introduce what I'm planning on doing. Imagine you're in a hive city (laughs) surrounded by people with raisins on their foreheads and you just don't know what to do. Those cults unearthed by the Inquisition have a common hierarchy, largely dictated by the generations and cycles of Xenos infection. Though variations occur, the patriarch is analogous to the monarch of this kingdom. With the Magus as his grand visor and the Primus the marshal of, the, of his crusades, larger cults have auxiliary structures, but this hidden core remains. So if- I have to ask, Ryan. Yeah. Did you intentionally put dictate and analogous for him to, to try to struggle through? <laughs> no, 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 no. These are quotes from the book, man. <laughs> did, did I say that right? Analogous? <laughs> analogous. You, it's you said analogous. analogous. You said, I thought he said it right. You, you left out it. He left out an extra. There's the, the O. There's the another o- analogous. But, <clears throat> analogous. Yeah. yeah. But. It was just really funny because I was just like, man, he said dictate without making a dick joke. I'm proud of him. And then, and then he's like, and now and I'm like, damn, now he got anal too. <laughs> two, t- two words in one thing and he uh, didn't crack a joke. Uh, I was not, like, I've never I'm seen this word before. I, I was trying to, there's a movie called Employee of the Month from like the, the mid 2000s. It's Dax Shepard. Um, Wasn't that the one with uh, Dane, like, Dane Cook? Dane Cook, yeah, and, and they work at not Costco. Yeah, they work at not Costco, and I can't remember the gal's name, Jessica Simpson, and Dax Shepard's yeah. like, like best friend that he works with is 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 kind of like this yes man that follows him around. And at one point, Dane Cook writes, um, "I like anal" on the picture of Dax Shepard, and the the other guy is like, "But who is anal?" <laughs> So I tried to look up that GIF. Uh, that was not something. Typing in what, uh, who is anal GIF into Google does not give you the results you want to see. Well, maybe it does, but 
Documentary research, Depends guys. Depends who you are. <laughs> so a fully matured... That's right. That's right. What I hate when the gift search backfires. <laughs> <laughs> usually I'm pretty good at it. If I actually use the title of the movie and the quote, it, it doesn't fail me. But apparently this was not one of those cases. I was like, I need to get away from this page as soon as possible or the patrons are going to get an eyeful <laughs> they're not expecting. All right, guys. Well, yeah, they should close their eyes then. <laughs> just, just winking at you. It's fine. <laughs> a fully mature gene stealer cult is massive, numbering in the millions, if not billions, and can, in some cases, cover multiple worlds. As an example, the cult of the pauper princes infested and grew on Ch- Chancer's Vale, but eventually spread to the v- to Vigilus and another 15 planets. In cases like this, the first world a cult takes, the start of it all, is known as the Genesis Infection while the spreading and subsequent infections under the same cult can be known as splinter cults. Again, a lot like the Tyranids themselves, while there is only a few actual hive fleets, and in theory it may actually just be one giant hive fleet, that fleet can separate into innumerable splinters or splinter fleets. In the same way, there might be a small difference in the splinter cults, but they retain commonality with the Genesis infection. Coloration of the chitin and flesh as an example. So if the Genesis infection are of the rusty claws, every other subsequent splinter cult is going to have that same general coloration. They're going to have those oranges. They're going to have those tones to them. As well as to use similar, if not the same, heraldry and iconography. In most cases, they're actually going to use almost the exact iconography. They're going to use the same talismans, which we'll talk about um, a little bit later, which are like the cult identifying icons. They might have variations on the banner because there's there's only one primary banner for the big named cults, but there's going to be other banners that are made that are in that likeness and are very similar to that. Although, as the society changes from world to world, there is going to be, as always with Tyranids, the ability for variance across all of these things based on the cult's needs. So if one of the worlds that the Splinter Cult happens to spread to is a water world, a bunch of stuff might change based on the fact that, well, it's no longer a desert planet now. It's a water world. Obviously, the cult's going to have to operate a little bit differently things might change in their coloration, things might change in their equipment, things might change in the way that they decorate themselves. However, all the cultists on a given world or in a given subsector are known by the Imperium as a single infestation. Since a cult grows in a given population and then can generate several full brood cycles, each geographical or technologically defined and contained cult population is known as a gene sect. Multiple gene sects will be scattered throughout a planet's population. As an example, each hive city on a hive world might contain a different gene sect. While these gene sects might have been founded by a pure strain gene stealer of the fifth generation and can and do use different markings and coloration, albeit normally just subtle shifts from the original, they are all ultimately under the power and influence of the same patriarch. In much the same way, The Genesis Infection Patriarch, even though there'll be other patriarchs underneath him in the Splinter Cults, he's the boss. He's the one that the other patriarchs look to. Uh, Much the same way, though, that Synapse uh, Synapse creatures work in the Tyranid army, those other patriarchs aren't necessarily enslaved to him the same way that those in the cult are, his specific cult are enslaved to him, but they're going to follow his lead more often than not. 
they're only going to do their own thing when they don't have direction from him. There isn't a well-defined boundary of how far a peer-screen gene stealer needs to be before it can become its own patriarch, but I feel that it's safe to assume that it would be within a system of separations, not planets. In my mind, and we'll get into some examples where this doesn't work, but in my mind, as soon as you've gone outside of that system, that patriarch of that other patriarch, essentially, that's going to be when that split can happen. That's going to be when that first splinter cult can happen. Again, it's not really well-defined, so we're guessing a lot with what they've laid out, but it doesn't make sense to me that essentially, like, let's take our our solar system, for, for instance. It doesn't make sense to me that if a patriarch rose on Earth, that there would be another patriarch that could rise on Mars. It might happen, and we'll talk about cases where it could happen, but in general, I don't think it's going to happen in Mars. Will it happen yeah, they, in the very they, next system next door? Sure. Yeah, they might leave it pretty vague in case you're trying to write like some kind of personal lore for it where you have multiple right. patriarchs like within a, a system. Right, and there's reasons that that happens. A- again, this is my theory, so I think it's safe to assume that based on the way that they talk about the patriarchs spreading and the way that they talk about the patriarchs splinters cults spreading, if the patriarch spreads to the next system over, it's probably that patriarch is probably a splinter of him. It's you're not going to see him generate fifth generation pure stream gene stealers and send them out to the next system, and then that that patriarch become a, a competing force. However, if he were to send his pure stream gene stealer brood way the fuck off and they end up like 18, 19 away, sure, that now becomes its own patriarch and that can become a competing patriarch to the patriarch that sent it out. That totally makes sense. Your next door neighbor doesn't become your enemy, but the guy who lives a city over might become your enemy, I guess, just galactically speaking. It's also worth noting that each gene sect will have its own specialized fourth-generation hybrids or bioforms and war leaders, including the Magnus, Primus, and Nexos. These gene sects will, however, still work together seamlessly uh, in the interest of the cult as a whole. What competition does exist is healthy, not aggressive or destructive. So gene sects, again, are, as a patriarch's forces grow in a population center, let's say a hive city, they completely take over the hive city and they spread to the next hive city. That next hive city is going to be a different gene sect, but it's going to be the same cult. A gene sect population is normally several hundred to the low thousands in strength, to give you an idea of about how many members it will have. And these members are members, then these members are further divided into claws, with a claw being between 50 and 100 members in strength. Claws are organized by need and can easily be disbanded. At any given time, a Magnus or Primus will have several claws under their command. Each claw will have a leader who directs them in the orders that they have been given that need to be fulfilled for either the Magnus or the Primus. Claws can be mixed groupings or be filled with a specific bioform or hybrid type, depending on the needs of that particular claws, tactics or strategy orders, essentially. As we hinted to already, once a gene sect or the first curse of a primary infection grows to the needed size, they will send out gene stealers to hunt down a new population to infect. As we mentioned last episode, the alpha, not the alphas, yeah, the alphas and the Adelan jackals might do a lot of this primary 
scouting, but then they're going to send gene stealers to actually do the job. These gene stealers can either be a gene stealer that accompanied the now patriarch when the planet fall was first made, or they can be a pure strain born to the fifth generation. So sometimes there's a bunch of gene stealers left over from when the patriarch rose, and they're still essentially in his entourage, in his posse. These new gene stealers will establish these new gene sects. Again, ultimately, these are all tied to the patriarch. In this particular case, those gene stealers, you know, they go to the next hive over and they start a new gene sect. They're not creating another patriarch because that would be too close to the influence of the original patriarch. So typically, a planet will only have one patriarch, but might have many Magnuses and Primuses in control of these various gene sects. In rare and mostly just theoretical cases, if a population is massive enough, a pure strain gene stealer might be able to rise up and become a new patriarch. Normally, the minimum distance for this to occur would be on a continental scale, however, as the psychic backlash of two brood minds increases as the distance decreases. So if a patriarch were to rise in the United States and then send out a pure strain gene stealer, pure strain gene stealer, and it were to make landfall in another very large landmass like Eurasia, and then that gene stealer were to become a patriarch, that could happen because there's enough separation and there's a big enough population. It's going to be extremely rare. As I mentioned, it's probably more a systems distance than a continental distance, but it could theoretically happen. In this case, the two patriarchs would compete and even outright war with one another for the resources of the planet and the control of the planet. However, this warring and this resource competing would immediately stop when the hive mind came within range as, as it would enforce its full control and take both of those patriarchs over. So patriarchs are going to compete from time to time. You can totally have gene stealer cult fight gene stealer cult, two different patriarchs fighting for control. You know, maybe they're both expanding into the same system. Maybe they rose in the same system. Maybe they rose on the same planet little crazy, but obviously it can potentially happen in theory. So there's reasons to have that happen. There's reasons to craft your lore that way. It's just when the hive mind shows up, when the tyranids show up, they're going to go, they're going to snap into that like zombie state where they start taking the controls, the, the controls and the order from the hive mind. They're no longer going to be acting on their own. So here is a little bit of backup lore wise to a question that we answered at the end of our last episode. In a case where a patriarch dies, the next gene stealer to have infected the next host will become the next patriarch. So if there were two gene, let's say the three gene stealers all make landfall on this planet in our example, and they all compete with amongst themselves to infect a member in this hive city. The patriarch succeeds in infecting, obviously. And like, Maybe we're only in the second generation of infected. New pure strain gene stealers haven't been born yet. Well, those second two gene stealers, the two that are underneath that patriarch, they're still doing the gene stealer kiss. They're still spreading it the same way that every other generation does. They're just doing it for the patriarch now because there's a patriarch. So if that patriarch dies, whichever of those two gene stealers infected the next person, the second infected that ever happened, will become the genetic successor. It's kind of like uh, genetic seniority, if you will. And it'll keep going that way. 
So say there's like five of these gene stealers around the patriarch and they're all in the same room. And for whatever reason, somebody sneaks a micro nuke in and blows all five up. Okay, great. Number six, wherever number six is, number six now becomes the patriarch because he was the sixth. It was the sixth gene stealer to infect somebody. So, so here's the big question, guys. Why humanity, right? Like, why, why are we just talking about humans? Because we fuck a lot. <laughs> it's actually really well, close. You know what? You summed that. up everything. I'm not even going to read the explanation. We're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> we also live in very dense cities. Like, there's a whole yep. bunch of things that make us perfect targets. Yep. So it's not just how the information is provided or the fact that it's easy for us as players to connect to the human-centric view of the 40K universe. Humanity, by the time of the 42nd millennium, has spread all across the galaxy like an infestation of our own. Not only have humans spread to every nook and cranny of the galaxy, but our populations are teeming masses, as Kevin just pointed out, often pushing the resources of planets settled by the Imperium well past those planets' abilities to self-sustain. There's a lot of that that we talk about in 40K. You know, there's agri-worlds exist specifically to feed populations. Planets' populations are so crazy, we have to take over other planets to raise food for the first planet. Like, it's mind-boggling. The numbers involved are crazy. That is mind-boggling. It's actually not an idea that originated in 40K either. But we'll get, we'll get to that. I'm, I'm, planning, I'm planning some where oh, did yeah. 40K come from content at some point. Hashtag soon.tm. Tom's not here to yell at me. I, I think can... you mean hashtag dune.tm. <laughs> I, can, I, can uh, I can drop future episode kernels as much as I want. Tom's not here to yell at me. <laughs> While mankind is intelligent enough to have spread to and conquer the stars, they are also too ambitious, curious, and arrogant. It's, our, it's their hubris, not our hubris, it's their hubris that they have created a perfect society for gene-stealer cults to thrive, as well as providing an almost endless supply of biomass. As Marky mentioned, we fuck a lot. Combined with humanity's reckless and willingness to colonize just about everything— Using brute force to scratch out an existence in any extreme, humans also breed really fast, with a span between generations being biologically possible in as few as 13 to 16 years. Not something we really like to talk about, but biologically speaking, if a gene stealer cult's trying to get there fast, they're going to be able to push those numbers as fast as they want or as fast as they can. Yep. They don't care. Puberty. They don't care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't care about any of that stuff. There's no societal trappings. They're literally just trying to spread as fast as possible. So this is that perfect storm that makes humanity an irresistible beacon to the Tyranids. The last part is the psychic talent through humans has also been on the rise for the last several thousand years that uh, not only in power level, but in birth rate. So, you know, a couple thousand years ago when, you know, 10,000 years ago, when the emperor set out on the great crusade, there was like, I think it was like 1% of 1% or something super low like that could be born as psychers. But obviously as those years progress, more and more psychers are going to be born, more powerful psychers are going to be born. All of that's going to happen. This is something that's very valued by the cults as a, a psychic individual, even untrained can give birth to a magus or any of the other fourth generation bioforms. And since the Great Rift, less and less black ships are frequent, especially on certain sides of it. So there is a rise in the number of psychers where there once wasn't. 
which is just like it's this fertile ground for gene stealers to play in. However, humans aren't the only species gene stealers have targeted. Over the years since they started to spread into the galaxy, they have targeted several other species. They tend to target races that are sufficiently intelligent and advanced enough to have space travel, as well as seeking out races that have dense populations or the ability to have dense populations. Because of this, they have infected orcs, the Crete, the Crute, the Eldari, the Terralin, and even the Tau. They are most successful in societies or races where the ability to keep secrets and operate in the shadows is abundant until they're ready to strike. For this case, the orcs have proven incredibly difficult to infest. Not only can orcs sense the wrongness, both through the actions that infected orcs take, but within their own green skin, gestalt-like shared intelligence and mind. Wog energy is kind of a shared orc consciousness, so once that consciousness is tainted other orcs are going to feel it. They're just going to know there's that wrongness. And Marky, you had brought this up in a past episode where, you know, you don't act proper orky. Yeah, they don't, uh, usually because... those gits ain't crumping each other. Yeah, I mean, Gene Steeler are a very, like, secretive, like, like close-knit group. So when orcs see you doing that, not, not crumping each other, not, you know, looking for a fight, you're trying to hide and build your numbers, they're like, that's not proper orky, so they crump the shit out of them and move on. Yeah. They can also just kind of sense it in their like green skin wogness, you know, whether or not that's coming through weird boys or war bosses, those that are powerful enough or not is kind of left hazy. So Crute have also proven to be a hard rock to crack as they can taste the infection through their advanced senses. Generally, this is done through tasting and sensing pheromone levels. So Crute that are infected with gene stealer, Genetics just smell wrong, and the crew figure it out really quickly, and they'll kill those crew. They just won't tolerate it. Eldari as a whole are extremely psychically gifted, making them a great and yet poor target at the same time. And Eldari can sense the shadow of the curse easily. So not only is there the shadow in the warp, but apparently there's the shadow of the curse, and the shadow of the curse being there's this, the brood mind. The brood mind puts out the signal. Also, Eldari breed extremely slowly. Not only are the gestational periods and time between generations much longer than with humans, but they just take longer to age. You know, you can get 13 to 16 years between generations in humanity, or you can get a couple thousand years between generations in Eldari, or maybe a couple hundred, a couple thousand might be a, a bit extreme. But either way, even if it was a couple of decades between generations in Eldari, you know, say it's 90 years between generations in Eldari, that's not going to give you the bang for the buck that you want if you're trying to spread fast. The Tau's connection to their ethereals makes the chance of a cult gaining access incredibly difficult and rare. Not a lot was laid out as to why this is, but I'm guessing that the ethereals have some sort of connection where they can also sense the shadow of the curse. Uh, it could also be that the ethereals have a lot more mind control over the Tau than we know currently. However, in a population without active ethereals or maybe no ethereals at all, the Tau might be tastier choices than human because Tau live shorter lives than people, than humans, and they have shorter gestational periods and they have shorter time periods between generations. So they could spread in the Tau really fast. However, the Tau also have an extremely small galactic presence. We haven't really gotten into the Tau yet, but... 
The Tau are a very, very interesting race in 40K because it kind of feels like they shouldn't exist. That they just seems to they be don't like hold a, territory. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot, they weren't exactly like a I don't want to say a, a faction favorite uh, when they first came out, just because of their style and whatnot. So it's probably why they've been yeah, kind of kept in a, a corner. Lot. Yeah, and and it sucks because I think a lot of us on the podcast like them. I think general Tau love is growing. I think a lot of people actually find him speaking fun. of my my friend hit me up today has some tile that he just started putting together wants to play Warhammer so one of you know us. we might get another tile player one of us. oh yeah since, not, since I'm not our tile saying player doesn't play anymore and your and yeah. your other tile player Tom. moved to Iowa <laughs> that too and your other tile player sold his tile yeah yeah although the other other tile player who sold his tile kind of seems like he might be looking at tile stuff again. I won't tell anybody, but I won't out you on the podcast or anything. (laughs) So all of these factors led to humans being the best and tastiest choice for the cult to thrive. So to look at how the gene stealer cults affect different types of worlds, just look at a quick list. So civilized worlds have a lot of imports and exports. All that extra traffic means a cult can easily take hold and use the planet as a springboard to expand. While this might be a more difficult plan to fully execute, all it takes is one simple failing on the admittedly giant and not exactly functional Imperium's bureaucracy to allow this to happen. Military cults. So lots of mankind's worlds are bent toward warfare, and a truly ambitious cult will seek to infect an Astra Militarum world. This is a high-risk, high-reward scenario, as if the cult gains a foothold, they can greatly add to their numbers and military strength. However, they can also be caught really easily. Feudal worlds make easy and rewarding if slow to expand targets. Well, often, they're not very populous, but once a patriarch has gotten the ear or the mind of a king or a queen under its control, it can use the feudal system to not only hide its actions in the open, but... It can basically just pick and get whatever it wants. Not to mention, if that feudal system rises up against the gene stealers, that's swords and shields versus gene stealer claws. Not to mention the fact that the cult is going to find futuristic weapons and bring them to that world anyway. But even if they don't, gene stealers got claws. Death worlds. Death worlds are a place a gene stealer can easily hide, ambushing training regiments, because a lot of imperial regiments are brought to death worlds just to train. This can help expand the infection, because those regiments will go home to their home worlds, and they'll take that kiss with them. Agri worlds. Again, these aren't the most populous, with generally 85% of their surface being given over to food production, but they still make great targets as a cult can use them as staging grounds to spread the infection. This could be by sneaking onto transports that are going to other worlds or by bioengineering and infecting the food exports themselves. So when you take a bite of your ration, you get a little bit of that germ seed. Yeah, to uh, give a little taste of what my my own personal lore is, what, uh, what I decided to do was the gene stealer cult or gene stealer decided to infect a penal colony and uh, he infected the essentially the higher ups of the penal colony and so what they did was an assembly line of uh, being medicated so he basically put the uh, inmates just in a line and you know a bag over their head or what have you 
and then just uh, medicate them. So it's pretty pretty easily infected planet. I like that. And Pino, yeah, start at the top. Pino World isn't one of the ones that I that I grabbed info for. So I like that. that that's that, again, like you can. If you if you get in the right place, you can operate with impunity, right? That's the plan. So feral worlds. A cult can become like the very star gods that they worship themselves, bringing massively advanced technology and weapons into the barbarian wastes. Forge worlds. While not only often packed dense with humans, like a civilized world or a hive world, these also hold many deep, dark hiding places like hive worlds there's lots of twisting corridors and places to hide in a hive world and the very nature of the robed mechanicum priesthood can also help to hide a cultist's true form so you can have high ranking or uh, yeah you can have high ranking members of the planet that are you know second or third generation they're just they're not going to be that weird because everybody's wearing giant wed robes and walking around hunched anyway i'm surprised that doesn't throw off their bio scanners because all the stuff yeah, I've read, I, I mean, maybe when it's like a wartime and, you know, it's different, maybe things are stepped up to a higher level during the wartime scenarios that are present, present in the books. But like all the ones that, because I just finished reading Titanicus after reading Mechanicus, right. you know, some not too long ago. And both of those books are always talking about like, oh, they like I knew the other dude was full of shit because I could sense his heartbeat, you know, fluctuating, things like that. And so I'm, su- well, remember- I'm surprised that that's not. So easy to see. remember that first and second or second generation for yeah first and second generation gene stealers are alien. So a bioscanner might not detect a heartbeat because the heartbeat may not work the way that the bioscanner is trained to see. So yeah, it but trying it would, to detect things on a human level, it would still notice that it's not. wrong though. Like everything, yeah. like they're supposed to be sophisticated enough. Like I know Warhammer's technology is is generally pres- like presented as being super backwards but at the same time it is incredibly powerful on certain levels as well right so like what they don't tell you is that the mechanicus can literally like x-ray you from fucking hundreds of yards away and have a better medical examination of you than anything we have today right but are they using that on every person? Right, and that's what I'm saying. Like you said, that you, if you could get up to the high-ranking Magos, I feel like their sanctums would be guarded, you know? And that, and that's the other thing. If, if they've infected the high-ranking officials for whatever reason, there's also a lot of arrogance with the Mechanicus. Oh, which, definitely, and that's know, what always is their downfall, is they'll like be low, like, oh, yeah. nobody could ever infiltrate. Why would I even bother with a medical scanner? I would totally see it coming from a mile away. And then they right. get wrecked. And oh, it's also, my Achilles heel! <laughs> <laughs> and that and that's more what I mean by the nature of the robed Mechanicus priesthood. It's not necessarily that like the gene stealers would be pretending to be members of the actual priesthood. Okay. But since the Mechanicum priesthood requires people to walk around in robes, you know, low ranking file member, Ethan two is going to be like swaddled in a robe. Right. Yeah. And they like, they wouldn't be using those same scanners that I'm talking about on their workforce, like constantly, that would be a waste of technology, especially for the Mechanicum. But yeah. It, it just when you said it, I was like, wait, how do they not like see it coming? But if, if they start yeah, with the yeah. workforce and then when they have an overwhelming number of workforce, like slowly start capturing <laughs> like the like the union boss level guys, 
you know, and then they'll progress like literally layer by layer up from the bottom. And we'll talk about the bladed cog here in a couple of minutes. And they, they did, they did some, they, they messed with the mechanic is pretty bad. Yeah. So colony worlds, while it might make for a much longer space for a cult to grow to full power, when a rogue trader and an exploratory fleet claims a new world, colonists are bound to flock in droves to settle it. Being there at the very beginning helps a cult gain a massive early foothold. You know, obviously, if there's 15 people on the planet and you know 700,000 are coming and you've infected every single one of those 15, you're, you're already winning. You're winning before anybody gets there. So as we have alluded to over the last several episodes, a gene stealer it's, cult's one true It's almost like a savings this. account. You put, you put a little <laughs> in and then you leave it alone for a while. And then you come it's back like and a, there's a whole bunch. It's like when you go back and invest like five cents in Microsoft, like <laughs> in 1980, and then you travel back to the future and you're already there. Yeah. I mean, that's actually not a bad plan. Spend $5 on every company that opens up a stock portfolio. And then, I mean, some of them are going to succeed, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Eventually. I think that's how penny trading works, though. <laughs> like, if I put I a penny on $5 billion... Five billion companies, and I've still only spent like fifty bucks. But if one of those companies takes off like Bitcoin, I'm a millionaire. That I don't think your math's right. I think it's I like five hundred thousand. But <laughs> I mean, like your your point stands. Point stands. I mean, so I put will... in a couple hundred bucks, and I more than doubled my money at one point. It all went away lately. But you know, yeah. shit happens. Well, when, That's when the I... stock market. <laughs> When I went to Vegas and I sat down at the blackjack table, I used a I used a, a algorithmic mathematical system that like count. wasn't necessary. Yeah. It's not necessarily gonna work, but it's it's better than just randomly hitting buttons. And I made like yeah two hundred and eighty dollars in like I don't know maybe an hour or two. Yeah, and then I literally lost it all in a fifteen minute streak of bad luck. So, exactly. You know. <laughs> even though you're still using the same logarithm, it's it just fails sometimes. It's statistics. But I, but I'm still kicking myself because, like, when I hit 280, I'm like, I should get out. But I was like, maybe I can get three. Maybe I can get three. <laughs> <laughs> That's like what happened. All right. And I mean, so I'm sure the same been... happens to gene stealers. I'm sure there's times where they <laughs> they're like, we need to kidnap this aristocrat so that we can, you know, we can get into the upper echelons. And then it, somebody walks in while it's happening and goes, work. "Oh, fucking Zeno! What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> right. Not only that, but even when they win, do they really win? Right, that too. So, <laughs> as we're alluding to, the gene stealer cult's one true function is to spread throughout as much of a human populace as they can as fast as possible. In most cases, this is a single world with a population in the billions. While the cult can spread to every living human on a given world, they normally this normally isn't something that they need to do or have time to do. What they do focus on is growing in power until they reach a critical mass moment, a combination of enough cultists and enough control over the population or technology that governs the planet that the cult can rise up and consume the world in a civil war they are most likely to win. The cult is not going to act if they think their like chances are 25%. They're going to act when their chances are 95% or 85%. However, a cult can be forced into taking actions early if they are discovered by local authorities as an example, or some other external factor, like the high fleet arriving sooner than expected. These can 
all cause them to act prematurely. While a mature cult can consume a planet with just as much joyous zealotry as military force, a cult forced into action early will be measurably more violent and brutal. In some cases where the cult might be discovered early enough or by a powerful enough imperial organization, such as the Arbides or the Inquisition, its success might be greatly threatened early on. In most cases, it's up to the Magus to attempt to silence or even infect or convert the threatening party. However, when this fails, an entire Imperial Guard regiment or a Death Watch team, kill team might be brought in to eliminate the threat, spelling disaster for the cult. These focus... These forces have to be extremely thorough and efficient, for even if one member of that cult survives and escapes, it's only a matter of time before that single cultist can restart the entire cycle. So, Marky, I I do think it's interesting that, like, you play Death Watch and Gene Steeler. Do you hate yourself? Uh, I'm actually tying them both. Are you at war with your own mind? You should be. (laughs) Yeah. Well, lore-wise, I'm tying them into one another, but... uh, I, the the yeah, main reason for me doing that is because too. I do hate, I don't want to say hate, hate is, a, I love fighting aliens. I don't hate aliens. I love fighting alien species. Aliens are nice bosses. Aliens and, and, and not bosses, aliens and zombies are good enemies, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, the reason I chose Gene Stealer calls It's cause is because their morality is not the question. Yeah. The reason you chose Gene sure. Stealer's? <laughs> I mean, guard go down just as... <laughs> well, well, right, but when you're but when you're fighting humans as no, like superhuman, I, I know, monks, I know what he meant. You feel bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know what he meant. I just don't feel bad. <laughs> no, no, I didn't mean it like that. You're taking it. It's what I'm. It's it's because they don't feel bad. The aliens. It's like the reason aliens and zombies are such great bad guys. Uh, that's what i was saying because it's not because like like when humans are killing humans there's like a moral compass decision being made there you know or like you know some commonality but when you go to zombies (laughs) like zombies don't give a fuck anymore there's there is no politics there's no religion for zombies hey man you ever watch warm bodies i mean they're they're people too maybe there was love yeah there was love brought them back from the brink of death just would just you know you just make out with the zombie maybe he'll come back to life man you never know it's like princess frog you know it's a, it's a little weird love story you know that's romeo and juliet right warm bodies yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's like forbidden love and the dad didn't approve of it <laughs> totally and, yeah 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 of course yeah romeo must die two, right two two great two great houses separated by whatever yeah sounds a good like movie. romeo and juliet to me story there <laughs> yeah so there is one infamous example of this on the hive world of Necromunda. The cult of the second sun had spread its influence throughout the entirety of Hive Segundus, becoming a massive threat in both physical power and influence on the world. When the ruling lord of Hive Primus became aware of this, he ordered the rad bombing of Hive Segundus, a destructive event that saw the hive break and shatter, toppling into itself even as it crashed and scattered out into the wasteland around it. Even though the destruction was total and secured, thousands of cultists still survived deep in the deeper warrens and tunnels of the hive, becoming massively twisted and mutated by the radiation that they were exposed to after the event. While the ruins of Hive Segundus were marked as a forbidden zone, it honestly didn't take long for the gangers, treasure hunters, and thrill seekers of Hive 
Primaris to go and check it out, coming into conflict with these massively twisted gene stealers. I'm pretty sure that this particular action wouldn't lead and that the cult's probably not going to be able to restart, or at least it's going to have a really difficult time restarting just because all the radiation that's been done. Um, but like, still don't go there. <laughs> might might <laughs> not, might not be place. great. And it's on Necromunda. Yeah. Ultimately though, everything that Gene's like one of the uh, most brutal hive worlds, right? Oh yeah. Necromunda. Necromunda or is hype cities. definitely going to get its own thing. That'll be its great. Own episode. Yeah. Ultimately, everything the Gene Stealer cult does is in preparation to feed the planet's entire biomass to their masters, the Tyranids. While it might take decades or even centuries, eventually a hive fleet passes within range of the Patriarch's psychic beacon, and the countdown begins. Somebody somebody should sing the final countdown. It's the final (laughs) countdown. (laughs) 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 so the shadow and the warp will slowly spread and cover the planet and its influence at first this just increases the run of the mill doomsaying and apocalyptic rantings of those that live on the planet all those guys on the street corners all of those street corner evangelists that are like the end is nigh are gonna go nuts people are gonna have visions the more psychically attuned might have literal nightmares of what's coming, but nobody really believes them. They just kind of blow it off. Eventually, however, it grows strong enough that it cuts off the planet's access to the Astronomicon. This still isn't the, oh, we fucked moment. This happens. Warp storms happen. The Nihilus event happened. Stuff happens that cuts off planets from the Astronomicon. They'll send out different means they'll try to get in contact with close planets and all of that and it can still kind of be done for a time period but then the planet itself seems to vanish entirely to outsiders and with no means of communication there is no means for the world and it is stuck and already doomed once a planet is truly cut off the true threat emerges as entire splinters of a hive fleet will appear in the sky blotting out the stars and darkening the days with their very presence. It is this moment that the faithful have always awaited for. The star children have arrived. True salvation is at hand. They take to the streets, celebrating and rejoicing, using the coming of their gods to either convince or bend others to their will and start their major resistance against all of those on the planet who don't see things their way. It's only it's only then that the true yeah, cycles yes, <laughs> of the Tyranids begin. The skies will become black with spores as the, as the hive prepares the entire planet for eventual consumption. Cultists proclaim it's always darkest before the dawn, however. They still haven't lost faith. They cheer when the Tyrannocytes start to rain from the sky, hoping to catch the attention of their coming angels. However, as the brood sacks smash open, disgorging gaunts, gargoyles, carnifexes, tyranid warriors, and all other hosts of bioforms, a slight doubt might cross a cultist's mind. But they're still loyal. This passes quickly, and they, fight, they start to fight the wider populace of the planet at the side of their saviors, the star children, the tyranid invaders. For a brief and short period, everything is bliss. The cultists fight alongside the Tyranids, mostly because the Tyranids are ignoring them. But 
Everything seems to be exactly what they've been promised, and they quickly consume the entire planet, wiping out any remaining resistance. When the fighting is done, the cultists turn to their saviors, eager to embrace them. However, as they walk towards their star children, their truth is revealed as they are embraced not by the loving care of these gods, but by the violence of scything limbs and hungering maws, the tyranids ripping into the cultists, eager to consume the rest of the planet's biomass. Even the patriarch becomes just another tyranid. It and its peer-strained gene stealers turn against the cultists from within, even as they are broken by the tyranids from without. The slaughter spreads as the cultists attempt to fight back, even as they don't understand what's happening. Any cult member who survives this are not going to be long for this galaxy, as the tyranid spores bombard the planet endlessly, converting the atmosphere on a molecular level, converting the entire planet to be ready for consumption. The cultists, just like the once vibrant human population, are devoured, dragged to digestional pools, and fed into the ever-hungering high fleet bioships up above. It's bleak, man. So it's a love story. Even if you win, you die. <laughs> It's 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 the exact op. It's a love story. It's the exact opposite of the orcs. Even if I lose, I win. <laughs> the the cultists. Even if you win, you lose. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I never thought about it that way. <laughs> Not every cult meets this fate. As even after they have triggered the beacon, a signal can be lost, or a high fleet splinter swallowed up by the warp, redirected into another tastier target. They could be stopped by the space marines. They could even bounce too close to a supernova and be completely wiped out. These worlds become those cores that we mentioned earlier, those Genesis infection cores, dense centers of fully converted populations that spread the cult's influence to surrounding worlds in an ever-expanding circle. For so long I was lost, locked in the endless cycle of darkness and futility. The daily grind, we called it. Waking from the hab block, eating the recycle paste, trudging to my station, working until my fingers bled. The only variation was the flickering flame of the auto candle at my relic station. Sometimes high, sometimes low. My father had died under its light, and his father before him. Then came the blessed dawn where I strayed, and in doing so found my Savior's kiffs. Life began anew. That was Zonska. <laughs> the story of my life. Minus the, ki minus the kiss. <laughs> minus, minus the star children part. That was yeah. Gonza Theron, scribe fourth class of the cult Hydraic. All right, so Dude. we are going to jump into the notable cults. The first one, who you guys may have heard of before, is the cult of the four-armed emperor. Yeah. No, there was no who. <laughs> What'd you say? Four-armed emperor. <laughs> Come on, guys. One yeah. of our oldest jokes. Yeah, I'm going to do that, that again. That. I'm going to... I know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the whole thing that again. Is, you 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 started the joke you started the joke with the punchline, but I have to because that's the name of the cult. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so the first one we're gonna talk about is the cult of the four armed emperor, the burrowers beneath, they who shall rise as one. Their talisman symbol is the original worm form. 
for, for the for the emperor. Is that the OG? Yep. Yeah. This is the crest seen throughout most Gene Steeler art and iconography. It's uh, I don't know how would you guys describe it. It's like a serpent with a mouth on one end and an eye. It's all. It's uh. Looks like a slug. It's with, uh. Yeah. You know, spikes on its back. It's a little mouthy, mouthy looking snake thing. Yeah. They look like rippers. Almost like they do look the like rippers. Yang. Yeah, it kind of looks like a ripper. So their banner. It looks like a ripper with Eldar nonsense yeah. on its back. So their banner. They still use the colors and heraldry of the Trist dynasty, which was killed off by the Death Watch. A four-armed human smith with a skull in place of its head, holding a hammer aloft in one of its Gene Stealer-like claws. A cog makes up a halo around the figure's skull. Their colors are red, blue, and gold, with that original worm form being picked out in gold at the center of their banner. They come from the planet Goshar Quintus. And in 680.m41, the true danger of the Gene Stealer cult was first encountered. An Ordo Xenos Inquisitor, Chargrin, led a team of Tempestus Scions into the Great Pit, the planet's massive mine. The lower away they went, the more twisted objects of corrupted faith they encountered. However, the Inquisitor's last message reported that all was well and that the Trias Dynasty was running the show with exemplary service to the Emperor. It took about a year for the Ordo Xenos to recognize this sudden turn in the reports, and fearing an alien presence, a five-man Death Watch kill team was sent to the planet, but they also vanished into the Great Pit. Chaplain Orton Cassius of the Ultramarines then formed his own Death Watch kill team and ventured to the planet once again. Cassius's and his team's conviction proved to be their greatest weapon. Slashing and killing their way through thousands of cultists, they unwove a net of lies in order to find the forces that went before them. However, all they could actually recover was the Inquisitor's servo skull. Then they were able to cut their way back out. Cassius's kill team and the Imperium as a whole would never be the same again. Ortan Cassius became obsessed with fighting the Tyranids and stamping out Gene Stealer cults wherever they were to be found. For it wasn't the discovery of the cult and the patriarch that was the worst. It was the detailed shipping records of the infected shipping dynasty. However, the coming of the rift had cut off a lot of the ability for planets to share knowledge and specifically share knowledge with those planets that may have been the most at risk. The Trist dynasty used the Imperium against itself, spreading the infection from Gozar Quintus to the Kakaradon? Is that how you say? It's Kakaradon, right? No, Kakaradon. The sector. Karadon? Charadon. C-H-A-Charadon. Yeah, the book that's out. It's one of the sectors that you can fight in right now. Charadon? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Charadon. I know that I know that I've never pronounced it right because there's like five ways to pronounce it. <laughs> Part of me wishes that they would just like come out with a pronunciation guide, like do it like a dictionary every time they fucking release one of these new war zones. Oh shit, right. So the Trist Dynasty Or like being... have somebody say it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Just have somebody like, have come s- out. In in whatever trailer, because you know there's always a little like mini like ten second video or whatever. You know, instead of just putting the text on screen. And showing us the books. Why don't you have one of your guys, like, say the name of it so that we all know who's saying it wrong? Because they'll say Cetacean <laughs> and I'll get mad. <laughs> I have not once heard That's a single true. one of them actually say that. I'm going to find the clip and send it to you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm going to ruin your day. I'm not going to ruin your day. I'm going to let you discover it on your own. <laughs> Good. 
That way you won't look for it. So the Trice dynasty had used the Imperium against itself, spreading the infestation from Gosar Quintus to the Charidon sector and even further. Rather than spreading in secret, the cult of the four-armed emperor uses their power and influence to manipulate the Ministorum into spreading them in force far and wide, as the cultists are seen as industrious and valued workers. Having thrived for 16 generations before Inquisitor Chargrin's investigation, the cult had already spread, being seen by the Imperium as peerless model workers, able to subsist on the most basic of rations and far outproduce any other workforce available. So they were cheaper and they were better. And the Imperium was like, we look the other way then, bro. Seen That's funny because I kind of do the, I was going to say, I kind of do the somewhat, something similar with my own personal lore on my genes to the cultist. That's awesome. Seen as the pinnacle of miners, burrowers, and subterranean explorers, members of the cult of the four-armed emperor have spread across nearly half the galaxy. Thriving in the lowest underhives and underworlds of the Imperium, even as their warlords act brazenly and in the open. Their cult is known for their tactics in demolition, undermining, and ambushing from below. Extremely well outfitted for war of all kinds. They are most widespread in the Ultima Segmentum. So they say that they have spread to the majority or almost half the galaxy, and they're definitely, if you look at the Gene Stealer map, they're definitely all over the place. I'll, I'll post the Gene Stealer map as a link. But um, they're most widespread and they're most a threat to the Ultima Segmentum. So next up is the Hive Cult, they who take up the gun against the tyrant. Their talisman symbol is the worm form, but this time... Giant, flaccid piece. It has been shaped into a crescent-style blade with a circular handle at its center. I don't see it, Marky. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's what that is. So the banner of the cult, their colors are taken from the new Gidlam 223rd, the purple and black with the symbol in silver. The trophies yeah, and scheme. skulls taken... That's dope. Yeah, the trophies and skulls on the banner were taken from the Commissar of the 223rd as well as the Ministorum Priests. <laughs> so each... Oh, yes. It almost looks like a karambit. Uh, yeah. I like I, what, Whatever the like thing at the top is, is cool. It looks like there's almost... Oh, no, I was talking about the, the, the icon. Oh, the icon? I was not about the... Oh, uh, okay, I yeah. can see that. I thought you meant this little doohickey because there's this thing nah. that comes off of it. It made me think of a chakram, except a chakram's a full circle. Yeah, it kind of does. The spinny disc thing that Xena yeah. fights with. I really like uh-huh. that every cult... So these are all Genesis infections. These are all primary cults. And each primary cult has one banner. And that's their primary banner. And all other banners are styled after that banner. So, But there isn't going to be just one banner for the entire cult. But there's going to be a prime banner that everything's based on. And that's what we're we're covering. Yeah, the, the icon banners. board. Yeah. So new, yeah, but there's a bunch of like little little guys that carry banners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, but the icon ward is going to carry the either the prime banner or banner based on the prime banner. So new Gidlim is a hive world made up of thirteen ancient hives, twelve of which have fallen to the cult. Only the last hive, hive, the Raxen, holds out, having learned the lesson of survival from watching how the other 12 fell, which is super, super dark. (laughs) Even though the hive will fall eventually, and even now its lower levels are constantly besieged by cultists. The cult took a foothold when one of the other hive gangs purchased 
a pure strain gene stealer from the Xenosar Dionysus, the great curator, in order to secure a secret weapon against their enemies. I, I love that, like, this is totally hubris. They bought the yeah. gene stealer. They were like, yeah, oh, let's yeah, have we one of those. That. It's totally going to be a great, great attack dog. <laughs> this is a good idea. <laughs> this is never, <laughs> nothing, no, this nothing is no bad way will happen. It's that it's that it's that meme where the dog is in the room and the everything's room's on fine. fire, except it's a dog in a room and everything's a gene stealer. And the dog's like, "This is fine." <laughs> it's totally what this gang did. They're like, "This is fine. Don't worry about it." The warlike gang quickly fell under the gene stealer they called the first father and went on the warpath, quickly surpassing all of their rivals in the underhive. While the family took over the sump district by district, the cult Magos Vokar Maya was bringing in the ruling dynasties of the hive into line. I think it's great that like while they were doing all this shit in the underhive, there was a Magus that was up in the uppers like fucking with the mm-hmm. dynasties. Although one stubborn aristocrat named Throne proved incorruptible thanks to a Xenos helm he always wore. However, Mai simply assassinated Throne, cutting him through with his talisman. So their talismans that we talked about earlier, that like bladed worm thing, they actually use to kill and assassinate, which I think is cool. Ritual dagger. Um, Because they all have one. They all have one on their body. This started the hive myth of the white creeper, which was only spread as Mai started to use the Sanctor assassins to eliminate other rivals. New Gidlim's principal export are Astra Militarum soldiers and forces, as well as roach worm silkers. As a reflection of the military world, the cult values nothing more than military-minded cultists. Basically, they've got a saying where if you've got a gun or a sword or a truck, you're adding value. Anything you can do, anything that expands their military prowess adds to the value of the cult. So they they value you if you come with your own equipment, essentially. Mm-hmm. As new guild... Gidlem is still used as a recruitment pool for the Imperial Guard. Many, many brood brothers of the Hive Cult have spread throughout the Segmentum Solar. Rumor says that they may even threaten the Soul System itself, which I thought was pretty damn cool. So, like, these guys could be in fucking, like, real close to Terra or on Terra. All members of the cult serve in the Guard. All of the members of the cult that serve in the Guard bear brands or tattoos that communicate who they are to those in the know. They also all have that crazy bladed talisman that we talked about earlier, styled in the same way as Vakar Mize, and they use it to kill an enemy. And when they do use it to kill an enemy, even on the field of battle, they see it as kind of this highly ritualized re-repeat of his first kill. Yes, yes, we could unite the paupers and the scribes, the factorums and the hab workers easily enough. They too have had their uses. But an uprising recruited from those ready access to military-grade weaponry. That will triumph far more easily than one recruited from common folk. Keep your toothless heart. The blessed union of gun, claw, and merciless intent is a force to truly be feared. So that's Brigadier Primus Lendis von Wanderschult. It's a very German a name. <laughs> yeah. So these, these, well, he was uh, a brigadier so, Primus, so he's a he brigadier, was. Yeah, it's it's almost like Colonel Commissar Gaunt, where like he has two ranks. He has right. the Primus, and he and has his fancy. military rank because he was probably a brigadier general. 
as his military rank, and then now he's also Primus because that's his like. Now he's got a raisin and a star. Yeah. So in a lot of cases, these primary cult worlds, um, people in the Inquisition might know are cult worlds, and they might be working against, but like the Greater Imperium doesn't really know. Uh, In some cases, they do, and the primary world has been attacked or whatever. But in the case of New Gidlam, uh, for instance, Gidlam, for instance, the people in that last hive world, they fucking know, but they're probably not getting any messages out to the Imperium. So the Imperium is still coming and recruiting Imperial Guard from here, because as far as the Imperium is concerned, they're still putting out good soldiers, one, and two, they don't know that anything's happened. The bladed cog, man, machine, and alien in glorious unity. Their talisman symbol is a stylized bladed cog with the worm form captured in its center. Even the worm form in this case looks a little bit more mechanicus. Everything about the bladed cog's talisman looks mechanicus. It looks like it, it might like gives me a vibe of like a like a worm, but like with a skin made out of liquid metal. Oh yeah, like T one thousand, but a worm. yeah, like that's but like alive, like a little worm of it. <laughs> that's cool. So their banners and colors: the cultist of the bladed cog, where the crimson of those forge worlds closely affiliated with Mars, the red planet. Their prime war banner is strung with the remains of the tech priest Dominus Ovid Therensome. That's where I'm saying, whose obsession with claiming energy from his own for use led to the original rebellion of Fenmister Gamma. These colors now fly above Theronsome's citadel of industry as a symbol of victory over the cult Mechanicus. Their colors are red and purple, trimmed with silver of the bladed cog at its center. Fenmister Gamba was once a humble planet, seen as little more than a cog in the machine, perfect for the oppressed masses to be rife for conversion. In late M41, tech priest Dominus Ovid Theronsome arrived on the planet with his macroclade army, seeking refit and refuel for his Mechanicus knights to continue a crusade in the name of the machine god. However, despite what he should have found, the planet was very low on resources, having poured every free minute of power generation into holding back the darkness and maddening lights of a nearby warp storm. So a warp storm had opened near this planet, and the population had basically decided... um, like like that movie uh, with the tooth fairy where the kid the, the kid who grows into a guy is like, I have to keep the lights on all the time. They basically decided the only way that they could keep the madness of the fucking warp storm from infecting them was to keep all the lights on. So all of their power reserves were gone when this dude showed up. Needing a solution, he resolved to harvest the power he needed from the bioelectric energy of the population itself. And he did this by setting his forces to take a census of the planet. So you call everybody into these big buildings, you take a census of who they are, etc. However, this was all a ruse, and those who reported to the centers for the census came stumbling back out near comatose as husks of their former selves. Although it grew slowly, a rebellion festered as the populace began to rage against the Mechanicus agents as they were slowly bleeding them dry. They were literally bringing these people in and harvesting their bioelectric energy, probably physically bleeding them in order to repower their machines. That sounds about right. Yeah, sounds very mechanic The rebellion was squashed quickly 
but Theronsum created the perfect breeding ground for an underground resistance as he tried to keep as much of the population alive for use as biobatteries. So instead of doing what he should have done and just fucking outright killing them all, he crushed the resistance leaders but kept everybody alive, or crushed the rebellion's leadership but kept all the people alive, which just bred, okay, well, obviously we didn't all die, so we're going to keep trading information and trying to you know, underground it as much as we can. When a pure strain gene stealer luckily found its way onto the planet from a cargo freighter called the Red Spark, it found a population ripe for the spread of the cult's good word. The Red Spark's crew by this time was already under the patriarch's spell and preached to the downtrodden that there was a better world than the hellscape the Adaptus Mechanicus was creating. The cult spread, becoming known as the New Deliverance. Cultists tattooing blasphemous, twisted, machine cult slogans on their collarbones and across their chests. They took the symbol of the machine god, but twisted those as well. Working to capture the weapons of war that they were producing under their own power in the forges for their New Deliverance masters. Even by brute force of its mental prowess, the patriarch of this particular cult was able to convert Skitari to its ranks as well, who then worked to infect members of their own brotherhood. So in this particular, yeah, in this particular case, like the patriarch had to do more than just stabby stabby. He had to actually like break their minds forcefully. The moment of ascension was planned perfectly by an ex Skitari alpha turned Nexos. When the time came, Theronsum was executed in accordance to a perfect mathematical strike. Where the Adaptus Mechanicus aims to blend all things human and machine, the bladed cog aims to blend all things Xenos and machine. Worshipping their clawed Omnisaya, they undergo strange and often painful surgeries in the parody of the Cult Mechanicus. So that's another way that you could do that, posing as the priesthood thing. Like, these guys literally, they are Adaptus Mechanicus Gene Stealer Cult. Like, that's what they are. Yeah. These are my, the next guys are my favorite. The Rusted Claw. When all else rots, the cult alone will survive. So their talisman symbol is a cog of industry being slowly consumed by a great metallophagic worm. That's how it's described. It looks like the slug thing eating a gear. (laughs) Yep. The banner. The cult's banner is made from the cloak of a slain Ormaster Rubio, overseer of the new seam's first gold mine. Each of the standard's gold pendants has been taken from the corpse of an upworlder who hindered the cult's progress. Their colors are red and silver with gold accents. The worm eating the cog is depicted in the center in silver. So these guys originated on the world of Newseem, an arid wasteland. The cult is known for their nomadic wanderlust and extreme resilience when it comes to surviving in the worst conditions. This is the Mad Max Gene Stealer cult, by the way. The miners ah. of Newseem toiled under the sickeningly rich upworlders who forced the population to mine the planet's precious metal, yet allowed those same miners to keep none of the unimaginable wealth they were generating for their, their masters. Brutalized into submission, the miners took the small chance they could to smuggle out and build a resistance. However, it seemed helplessly doomed to catch a foothold. That was until the ceaseless mining uncovered a buried spaceship, which contained a hibernating pure-strain gene stealer. As the infection spread, the prospecting division of New Seam unknowingly started to spread the cult to other worlds. 
with help of the Upworlders Rogue Trader allies. So these guys on New Seam were so well known for their gold hunting prowess that they would take these teams and they would send them off to allied planets in, in the holds of Rogue Traders, you know, and to, to spread. And the problem was that, not the problem, but not the problem for the cult. The problem for the Imperium is that some of these prospectors were part of the cult. So they were literally like the Imperium was literally infecting other planets. Which seems to be a theme, by the way. <laughs> the yep. Imperium is doing the damage. I mean, the Imperium is its own worst enemy. Yeah. As as much as all the other races are terrible, like the the Imperium could have handled all that other bullshit if it wasn't so busy handling its own bullshit. Yeah, trying to make money. Yeah. Well, I mean, just in general. Yeah. All all of the Imperium's bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah. And that's the point. Like the point of the Imperium is that it's shitty. It's yes, exactly. So the rusted claw embrace nihilism, seeing material possessions as worthless and even seeing themselves as corroding material littering a universe of entropy. They believe that the only thing that brings salvation is being consumed and born anew through the power of the star children. And that is when they will become something more. That is when they will ascend. This mindset leads to rough and tumble looking pioneers, believing an object is only valued for its use and the length of that usefulness these are the type of guys that like uh, you know again these are the mad max guys anything that still works they're going to press into service they're going to keep fixing it until it finally breaks they're not going for flashy they're not going for pretty they're going for does it work they worship rust and the corrosion of metal as gifts from their patriarch and long to see the whole of the imperium consumed by these agents of entropy Atlan jackals and kelomorphs are very common in the Rusted Claw. It was a kelomorph known as the Golden Talon who defied the Ore Masters by dipping one of his talons into the molten gold. For while the Rusted Claw don't value material things, they do understand the effect of denying material wealth to others and twisting what it means. So the kelomorph doing this was a like open defiance. One, they're not allowed to keep any of the gold they mine. Two, the kelomorph was like, fuck you, this is worthless. This is how much this is worth to me. He's like, I got, I got the that rusted bling. bling. <laughs> right. The rusted orange and bright metallic hues worn by the rusted claw are attributed to their belief in the metallophagic worm, a colossal invertebrate that consumes the flesh and machinery with equal veracity. Many of their neophyte hybrids also wear tabards and robes of scarlet, signifying that they have slaughtered an armed warrior on the orders of their leaders. I had mentioned earlier that I was starting to plan out my own Gene Steeler cult. They will definitely follow the Rusted Claw in some way, shape, or form. Starting with my knight. I really like the idea yeah. of being able to really, really push like grim dark painting styles with this idea. Really starting to yeah, play definitely. with some of the rust and like oil effects. Especially with the knight. Oh yeah. Uh, especially when I like can combine it with some gene stealer stuff because I'm going to make it look as like tyranny as I can Yeah, bling it with out it, too. without it looking too crazy. It will also allow me to play with um, lots of Atalans at a land stuff, which I want to do anyway. It'll let me to do like kind of a more vehicle heavy army, like lore wise. I don't know. I don't know how yeah. I'll build it on tabletop, but you can definitely build it super, super vehicle heavy. Ooh, I, I'm, I'm totally thinking about doing that. Although I really love Aberrant. <laughs> I think the aberrants are fucking cool as shit looking. Hey, man, not, nothing's stopping you from using them either. You can load them in the That's back true. of your trucks. There you go. Drop them off. 
catch around. The more we talked about it, the more now I kind of to avoid to avoid sharing too much in common with your Mad Maxies. I think I will go with Plan B, Clan Cletus. Clan Cletus. <laughs> Clan Cletus from an agri world way out in the boons, yeah. Segmentum <laughs> Easticus somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Our prime banner just... is a field of wheat with the man on the middle, yeah. and his neck you might notice is a bit red. <laughs> He'd been working all day. <laughs> Woo wee corn I just, liquor. <laughs> I just I think it'd be hilarious to see an aberrant wearing like a pair overalls. of overalls. <laughs> but like, you know, all all fucked up and like only one strap. <laughs> uh, you do like you do. I see Marky's face. He's like, ooh, do tell me more. Do, tell me more. Do, do like it. Pa, pa, I'll do it, pa. <laughs> do an aberrant pair that's American Gothic where it's the two people standing in the, the Oh <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh my god. Or do the the Magus and the And the Primus is American there you go. Magus and the Primus is American Gothic. Oh my god. Oh this would be oh man. So Yep. I don't know. I came up with that one after you were like, ooh, we might have to fight and I was like, Oh, I better come up with a plan B and I was like, Clan Cletus. So I don't I don't think I'm gonna go super like Wasteland Mad Max route with the rusted claw stuff. I'm not more just repurpose vehicle stuff more, I, well more rather than like yeah wasteland yeah apocalypse more more gr- like more re- like heavy grim dark stuff like the the mag 28 painting style just just really really heavy and all that grime and grunge yeah but it'd be interesting I, i'm not gonna do like a bunch of vehicle well maybe i will and it's me i probably will <laughs> i'm lying i'm not gonna do heavy conversions on my black legion convert an entire fucking unit to ride horses the Pauper Princes from Great Sacrifice Comes Immortality. Talisman symbol, a worm form with many limbs, for each cultist is but a single talon of the greater cult. So it, it looks like a slug. It's got kind of a lightning bolt tail, and then it's got like three or four limbs. It also looks all bolted together and rusty. It's neat. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. So the Pauper Prince's banner is crowned with the mummified corpse of Saint Tendark. The Magus epitomizes their selfless urge to protect the Patriarch, and by extension, all those who echo his form. Its skull still bears the whole of the sniper's bullet that killed him. Before each battle, the members of the cult insert two fingers or talons into the empty eye sockets of the cadaver, believing this will give them a portion of the Magus's uncanny vision. Their colors are purple and red, with the limbed worm depicted in red at the center. The Pauper Princes come from the slum world of Chancer's Vale, which, although it is listed as Imperium World, is under the complete control of the cult. The cultists of Chancer's Vale live in slums and shantytowns that cling to the world's coastlines, many of the world's population mining minerals from the seas of the world itself. The world's major export is millions of tons of saline cubes a year. I thought this was super interesting and totally got back to some of our world building stuff. Like this world is an ocean world, obviously, and its major export is export is literally fucking salt. Two worlds around it that don't have salty oceans of their own. So salt is important enough that it's being fucking exported across space lanes. Oh yeah. Actually, uh, that reminds me that there is a, a really, really, really old. Uh, so you know the game Homeworld. Yes, right? love Homeworld. So uh, I don't remember if it was a fanfic, like you know, like single paragraph, like 
you know, little like short story or if it was official or something. But I remember it was like a, a ship of Vigarans had raided another ship mm-hmm. and they were stoked because it was full. <laughs> They're like, oh, fuck, we're rich, boys. <laughs> yeah, because like in space, where are you going to get salt? Well, and that all the all because they're getting water off asteroids which would be fresh water mostly you know like kind of fresh ish water but so you know the fact that they they were like salt (laughs) is awesome that's one of the things they were like way more valuable like they found food they found you know normal like fuel spare parts stuff and then when they got there they like busted it out and like started throwing it around like pirates and gold coins kind of thing we're gonna get into creative writing from an economic standpoint like like starting with an economic basis when you're doing creative writing and world building soon we're gonna talk about like black markets and stuff like that but i think one of the interesting things to point out here is since not only is it mentioned in the gene stealer lore but you just brought that up from homeworld is a lot of what we know about near-Earth asteroids is that they're incredibly rich in rare-Earth minerals. So that's like gold, silvers, all of this stuff that like we find highly valuable because there's not that much of it. A lot of the near-Earth asteroids, the stuff that we could theoretically mine within the next 20 years or so of our actual lifetime, are fucking packed. They're dense with this stuff, which is good because a lot of that stuff is used in technology, so obviously it'll be useful for future. But it also means that once you, you know, theoretically escape the planet, some of that stuff isn't as valuable because some of that stuff is everywhere. However, shit like water and salt only come from Earth or might only come from Earth. So you start to play with these concepts of like things that we don't value could be really valuable. It's it's interesting because a lot of it like goes back to the Silk Road and what, why spices are valuable and all that. Anyway, we'll bring that up in detail when we hit that creative writing episode. Um but yeah, so these guys export. You got me really excited for that one now. I I, I just love the con- that that whole world building aspect. That's one of the things that I look for. Yeah, it's 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 fun. It's the way that I start out world building too. So, but yeah, so these guys make all their money by exporting salt. These conditions, however, have made the cultists of the homeworld wrinkled with, uh, very wrinkled. They're you know salt extra salt in the air. It's going to make them really wrinkled. Their skin's kind of withered and they're extra pale. They've got this like pale withered cast to their skin traits that mark them out as blessed scions of the Holy land to paupers of other worlds. The cult is more zealously faithful than some of the other cults willing to give their lives for their patriarch and the many saints and prophets that have grown up throughout their cult. The poverty and deplorable living conditions of Chancer's Vale are some are so extreme that many of the original members of the cult were not converted by the Gene Stealer's kiss, but just by the mere chance that the cult offered them a potential escape from the planet itself. So we had mentioned this in the last couple of episodes. Sometimes people join the cult because the cult offers what they're not getting in life. It, it's family, it's support, it's chance at a better life it's the chance that there's something after that the star children will embrace you possibly nicer than the god emperor will we 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 now know since we've covered the lore that that's not true they just go eat you but you know the patriarch having made its lair in the hidden tangle of the of a super space barge called the just strength that was docked in the spaceport city of senfar from the halls of the strength came a cult that preached hope, solidarity, and new beginnings. So these were 
people that looked a little bit better than everybody else on the planet because they had come from a spaceport. They come from a kind of wealthier area. So it was very appealing. The cult's first and most talented demagogue, Magus Marovich Tendark, preached of a new life among the stars, converting thousands in just a few weeks to follow in the devotion of the star savior. So again, this guy is converting people faster than the Gene Steeler Kiss is going to be able to convert people. Tendark achieved the status of saint when he martyred himself to save the star savior, that was what the cult called their patriarch, from the bullet of a rattling sniper. Because of this, the cult hates rattlings and will seek out and destroy them whenever they are encountered or spotted within cult territory. The cult embodies the inhuman brood mind more than any other, with entire throngs of cultists sacrificing themselves or acting in concert ritual efforts to buy their leaders just a few more seconds to escape. The Ordo Xenos has files of hundreds of reports of extreme martyrdom committed by members of this cult. The military strategy of decapitating the head of the snake has proven impossible against the leadership of the cult as they seem to react as a single body with the prescience of oncoming attacks, always moving to secure their leaders or interrupt the attack before or interrupt the attack that's meant for their leaders. So you know, jumping in front of bullets or, you know, the, the kill team or the strike thinks that this building is full of the leadership and it's not, it's just full of cultists acting like the leader. It's said that to be a war leader of the paupers is to lead a charmed life. To be one of the pauper princes is to live forever. The cult worked for decades to undermine and infiltrate every part of the society of Vigilis, near the northern end of the Nachmund Gauntlet, even infiltrating the Adaptus Orbides and the Inquisition. It is said that the patriarch of the planetary infestation, the Grand Sire Worm, so this would be the patriarch on Vigilis, who reports to the patriarch on Chancer's Vale, is so adept at evading capture and discovery, he is like mist and can melt in and even shift through shadows itself. When an orc invasion threatened to destroy all the cult's efforts on Vigilis, even before the insurgency had begun in earnest, the paupers found themselves fighting to defend the very world that they were moving to take. Having invaded the wastelands and the hive sprawls of the planet, the orcs were brought low by the pauper's plan meant for the Imperium citizenry. In the Dirk Den hive sprawl, the paupers spread a gene poison into the hollows. These are giant reservoirs that fed the entire planet water supply. This brought the world low, even infecting the highest echelons of the Ministorum of Saints Haven and the ruling Aquarian Council. Did I say it right? Aquarian. Uh, it's the Aquil yeah, I know, but it's trying to say it as like an Arian that's not working. Aquilarian. It's it's Aquilarian essentially, like water. Aqu Aquilarian. Think of it. Think Aquilarian. of it like your okay. Yeah, there you go. It's just a, yeah. it's a weird that I can say in my head, but I can't form with my mouth. <laughs> right. It's a straight. Well, it's because you don't. You're trying not to say aqua, right. but really, that's essentially right. what it wants you to to yeah. say. If not for the intervention of Marius Calgar's ultramarines, which fought to bring the planet back, the cult would have succeeded. However, by that time, the pauper princes had already spread, infesting Vigilus's moon and venturing even farther abroad. I like that they, I like that a, that a rattling sniper killed their like first saint or made their first saint. And they're like, fuck rat. Dude, that's so crazy, fuck right? Fuck those yeah, guys. I was like, the, yeah. I'd never heard that before. So it's like, huh. Now I got a reason to counter snipe also, Kevin's rattlings if he ever brings them. <laughs> snipers. 
I also like that before they go to battle, they put their fingers in the dude's eye sockets to like get part of like to get his sight. Yeah, it's like such ritual. a creepy ritual. Right. <laughs> All right, so the twisted helix, they who swallowed the bitterest pill. Their talisman symbol is a twisted version of the hermetic caduceus used by the Imperium's apothecary institutes. This catechus. was the caduceus. Why would you call it a catechus? Because I could have sworn that's what I had heard it called before. Oh. I've always heard medical, like first responders, call it a caduceus. Interesting. Aren't words fun? Huh. <laughs> catechus. I like that. Um, caduceus or catechus, however you say it, it's the it's the medical. If if you're familiar with the staff of Hermes with the twisted snakes, that's a lot like what this talisman looks like. There's just not a staff in it. The banner of the Twisted Helix is hung with vials containing elixirs, hypersteroids, and blessed ichors taken from the veins of the cult's alien test subjects. The colors are the gray of medical scrubs with the cult's symbol depicted in purple. It de- it totally looks like the curtains that are like around a surgery or like... Dude, I always like... Uh... Trauma surgery. Oh, yeah, the, that color... That's that's like scrub yeah. color. I always sure. like yeah. uh, green and you purple like... combination colors. It's like my two favorite colors oh, yeah. together. That's good. That's cool. That explains some of your painting right? stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of it's green and green and purple. Originating on Vajavan 3, deep in the eastern reaches of the segment of Obscurus, a civilized world, at least by imperial records, but a world that was long overtaken by the macro-alchemical distilleries used to manufacture goods to match its export demands for medical supplies. So this is a civilized world that has become a forge world, but they still call it a civilized world. This industry is so powerful that the skyline of the world is crowded with enormous ridge lines made up of by metafactoria. Vejovium. I like that they're not Vejovium. Vejovium 3? Yeah, Vejovium 3. Yeah, Vejovium Or Vejovium, if you want to make it silent J. Vahovium, Vajovium. I like Vajovium 3. Yeah, Vajovium. Um, I like that they call them metafactoria. So they're, instead of manufactorums that make medical supplies, they have their own name for them. I think that's cool. Their controlling dynasties have been steering the planet's faith for generations. It is here that the cult of the Twisted Helix grew in power and eventually began to use the Imperium's limited knowledge of its own medical science against the Imperium itself. The war leaders and biophagists of the Twisted Helix see themselves as godlike beings, seeing the flesh and blood around them as so much clay to be used in experiments, which twist and combine the human xenos and the very fabric of the void itself. To them, everything is an experiment, even the wars their followers wage, nothing more than a test bed for their future experiments, ever seeking the production of the perfect life form. Only galactic dominance will satisfy the cult leadership hidden behind the facade of the Metafactoria. In M38, the Doxin Craft rebellions convinced the rulers of Vajoyim III to crack the code on the secret of dulling the mind. The populace of the planet kept docile and dull with an inhibitory chemical mix that was put into their rations and water supply. While the docile, almost bovian state of the citizens shocked and horrified those who often visited the world, the widespread need for its medipacks and supplies across the far sector acted to dissuade true investigation. This served to see the planet's profits and power of its dynasties only grow. So this is one of those cases where, like, the Imperium showed up and was like, this is fucking horrifying. What are you doing to your population? And they were like, 
but we're not going to stop you because we need your shit. Oh, you know. <laughs> we, we got a war going on, boys. What are you doing? No, I just want to know. I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> just ask me a question. Just explain, explain it to me. I'm going to leave, but explain yeah, it to me. I have me. something, I have something I like similar in my, my lore to you. It's like a necessary oh, evil. I love that. I love, right, like, like the devil yeah. you know. Again, it was a clutch of pure strain gene stealers bought on the black market that served as the first dominion and the rise of the twisted helix. So just like the, not the hive. Yeah, just like the hive cult. Once again, hubris of like, well, we're going to buy these things and experiment on them is what led to everything happening. Although the spread of the cult was initially hindered by the chemical suppressants and their effects on the population's psyche. Intended to be used in the world's many medical experiments, these gene stealers, the first, these gene stealers and their first would-be infected managed to escape. He was, he did this because he was able to withstand the gene stealers gaze long enough because of the suppressants making him kind of dull in the head that he was able to slam the airlock closed. So basically like the gene stealer didn't affect him the way that it wanted to because his brain was dumb, but his instinct for survival was strong enough. So he hit that button, airlock slams down. This barely stopped the ovipositor. However, the ovipositor still cracked the glass creed when it hit it. When news of this reached the... Gene the... stealers can't get in your head, man. <laughs> if you're so out of your head, man. <laughs> Fucking Cheech and Chong defense right there, buddy. <laughs> I call this... Yeah, man, haze shields up. Man, I call this mix Gene Steeler's Kiss, bro. Because, like, when you smoke it, you're immune to the Gene Steeler's Kiss. You know what I mean? <laughs> I fucking love Cheech and Chong. All right. So when news of this event reached the world's leadership, they acted fast in order to protect their volunteers. If you didn't hear that, I put volunteers in air quotes. They flooded the airlock with... Voluntold? Voluntold, yeah. They first flooded the airlock with radiation. That didn't kill the gene stealers. So they tried poison gas. Didn't work. Then they hit them with sonic destabilizers. Still nothing. Then they tried corrosive acid mists, but that didn't work either. So eventually they just settled on the old overkill of barraging the entire room with overwhelming firepower until they were mush. I was about to say, at what point did they break out ye old flamer and, uh, you know, just have a good good old-fashioned Australian barbecue? They didn't try for some reason. Like, they, they just, they, they were like, uh... Radiation, <laughs> sound waves. I, I like how radiation gunfire. was what they started with. They didn't. I like. I would have started with gunfire. I'd been like, we're gonna shoot him. But it kind of makes sense. I would have started with stabbing it. Oh, by stabbing <laughs> it, it makes sense why they didn't do it. Well, that, you got to start with stabbing. Right. Right. And then stabbing from farther away. <laughs> then stabbing from a distance. Over hundreds of ex- stabbing with something. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to stab with that an guy weapon. over there. I've got a bow and arrow for you. I really want to stab the guy over there a bunch. Uh, Here's an assault rifle. (laughs) They then conducted over hundreds of experiments and dissections. The medical overseers were able, through this process, to extract the germ seed of the pure strain, the same code that would have been implanted by the ovipositor. At the direction of a shadowy individual known only as the prime specimen, the discovery was exhaustively researched. Until they came to the conclusion that it was the threshold of a new evolution. 
This genos gene pattern was the path to true perfection of their own cells and maybe even the secrets to immortality. Under strict test conditions, I don't know how strict considering the second half of the sentence, some of the vahoim, vajoim, vajavim, fuck, I lost it. <laughs> Vajovium? Vajovium, thank you. Is it the same one or is this a different no, it's the one, same one with a similar name? It's the same. Yeah, Some of the Vajovium aristocracy infected themselves with the serum made from the gene seed. I'm sorry, injected, not infected. Themselves with the gene seed, uh, the germ seed, effectively beginning their transformation into something that would have resembled neophyte hybrids. Even though they had evaded the infection, they had willingly infected themselves a couple of months later. Through further experimentation, they sought to clone that original gene stealer clutch in order to acquire more of this genetic germ seed and infect others in an ever widening process. Eventually, the Jehovians began to slowly resemble a cult like any other. Obsessed with the delusion of godhood, the prime specimen and his peers continued to explore and experiment on more and more bioforms. They became convinced that in order to enthrall their citizens and secure undying loyalty, they had to spread the germ seed which eventually made it into the curative syringes of the Vajovian medical exports, infecting millions and obviously spreading off the planet. These early concoctions weren't as virulent, and some had immune systems. Some people had immune systems that were capable of resisting it, although more medical treatments or a midnight visit from a gene stealer often took care of this when they were brought to the forefront. So they would give people pills and stuff, you know, if you resisted the the um, syringe injection, they would give you some pills. They'd be like, hey, take two of these, call me in the morning. If you survived that, they would send a gene stealer after you. I also think it's important to mention that, like, these Medipacks were leaving and going to other battlefields. So obviously people on those battlefields weren't all becoming infected because some of them just had the effects of the medicine, but their immune system was powerful enough to fight off the pretty weak germ seed. Those early, uh, over the years, the imperfections of these serums. Well, they, they wouldn't want to make it too strong because then it would be too right. obvious. So over the years, the imperfections of these serums and injectables have created all sorts of mutant aberrations, multi-limbed hybrids, and even conjoined monstrosities, all which are kept deep in many factoria ward cells deep underground. When the prime specimen grows tired of less violent means to achieve his goals, he will unleash thousands of these aberrants and metamorphs, fueled and goaded into great feats of violence with steroids and aggression enhancers. But for every planet the cult takes through violence, there is another that they take through subterfuge and political manipulation. So the Twisted Helix, I think, they're not my favorite, but they're my favorite basis because it's 100% the, like, the evil of men corrupted. Like, these guys were so obsessed with perfecting themselves and becoming immortal that they willingly made themselves gene stealers. <laughs> Did they really grasp like yeah. the gravity of what they were doing when Absolutely. they did it, or were they ignorant? Do you think? I don't think they, I don't think they fully knew. I think they just thought, like they partially. But even knew. so, like this is the one cult in all the cults that we mentioned where they don't give a shit about the Tyranids coming. They literally want to take over the entire galaxy. They think they're yeah. the true rulers of the galaxy. This is like it's like species. You know, you get infected with the thing, and then you have the thing, and. Then it 
You, yep. you do the thing, you know, <laughs> sex. It's winking at me. Uh, <laughs> so those are the seven major cults and they've spread most of them as you know, we covered in the lore have spread to other planets. Also gives you a little bit of a timeline, a little bit of the history of the cults. However, there are infestations beyond number, and we wanted to cover the six specified in the book quickly just to give you guys a couple more mind worms. So the first are the inner worm cult. This infested the world of Fleshgate, a planet that provides groks, grontok, and bovian meat to the Maudlin system. The patriarch having hitched a ride in the intestines of a void whale that was later butchered for its meat. The cult name comes from the foot-long intestinal worms found in the livestock raised on the planet as the cult grows much the same way throughout the Imperium as that intestinal worm spreads through its host systems. Um, I, I love that these guys literally come from a fucking slaughterhouse planet. Uh, I also like that the genes... Steeler patriarch was swallowed by a void whale and then and then again like they butchered the void whale and that's yep. how it got out it's yeah it's it's unique do you think it did it intentionally as well i i don't know i think gene stealers are more opportunistic than intentional yeah i feel like that one it probably just was shot out in a spore the whale ate the spore and then it was just like i'm free yeah it was like oh oh hi i'm gonna bite you now so oh, the cool. vicious, just what I've been waiting for. <laughs> the vicious circular saws used by the inner worm cult in their work form the basis of its banners and symbols. So I imagine that their symbol, which is very much looks like a circular saw, is like what they use to cut meat. It's a circular saw with the worm thing in it. It's cool. So next is the Behemoid Undercult. This infests several worlds on the fringes of the Ultramar system, continuing to operate and grow despite repeated attacks by the Tyrannic War veterans of Ortan Cassius. There he is again. Rumor says the cult worship a great beast along with their patriarch. This Tyrannid monstrosity is trapped in the glacial ice and is called Old One-Eye. Such is their devotion to this beast and the gene and the Xenos gods of the Bahamoth that they ritually scar themselves, even carving out their right eye in tribute. The one-eyed worm form... I love that they follow fucking... Uh, that they worship old one-eye. The one-eyed worm form of the undercult devours the laurels of those civilized empires it seeks to lay low. So their cult symbol is like actually a beaten plate of metal with the worm stamped into it, and then the eye is like crossed out. That's... I actually appreciate how unique that one is. Also, note the totally crab different. claw. Oh, yeah, and it has a crab claw. This is the other one that I would consider doing. Um, this is the other one that I'm considering doing because I love Old One-Eye, and I think it would be dope to do an Old One-Eye-themed army. I'm actually not familiar with Old One-Eye. He is a Tyranid monster. Little... He's like a Tyranid hero. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I thought a, it was like a, a, a Norse mythology he's a named or Carnifex. some other some other reference for it. He's yeah. the only named he, other than the swarm lord, he's the only other named Tyranid hero. Hero. Uh, I mean you got the <laughs> parasite of parasite oh, of vortex there's, there's or whatever it is. More. Yeah. Yeah. And then and some of them don't have like individualistic names. They have like no like the notoriety names. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All all like of the, them are like the they're all just like yeah. 
templates essentially. They used to have the uh, Doom of Malentai and yeah. uh, the Death yeah. Leaper and shit like that, but Death none of Leaper, them are, that's the one I was thinking of. are like named quote unquote. Uh, Tyranids are our next series because it'll flow really well from Gene Steeler cults. We're going to get into all that stuff. I love the Tyranids, man. So the Star Kindred are next. This cult infests the Galepid Reach and claim to worship the God Emperor in the form of a holy sun. However, the truth is that the cult's true faith is the limitless and lightless void just behind that sun and its surrounding stars. They claim the great void gods will eventually swallow the sun and the Galepid Reach, and only then will the truth of the universe be revealed. The holy sun to which the star kindred offer their human sacrifices is emblazoned on every cultist's body. So again, their symbol's a little bit different than others. It's a it's a gold sun, like circular gold sun symbol or or beaten metal plate, um, almost like a, a Spartan shield. But then they've got the worm form in the center of it, which is pretty neat. It it reminds me oddly enough of the holy symbol of Palor from Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> All right, so the sons of Yorm and Gondor are next. So they often call themselves just the sons, and they come from an infested chain of space stations stretched across the Black Nebula. They worship a resurgent biofleet that coils through the Thalassesis sector like some impossible vast serpent, inspired by that biofleet which hurls asteroids filled with tyranid spores into the vast nothingness, the sun spread by stowing away on bulk freighters by the thousands, spreading across the sector as oh, they build good. their numbers so they can take it in one fell swoop. So the worm that devours itself is the symbol of the suns. Only by being consumed will they be born anew. So just like the sons of Yornmonder, their name suggests their symbol is a serpent eating its own tail surrounding a planet or surrounding what looks like a world. It's a cool symbol as well. Jormungandr. 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 God damn it. Jormungandr. Jormungandr <laughs> is a named type of Ouroboros. And Ouroboros That's the one I was thinking. That eats its own tail. Right. Um, so yeah. So next is the Blessed Wormlings, feeding on the beetles and squirming annelids of the graveyard world of Mashipar, these dark and brooding cultists believe the verminous insects inherit the strength of all creatures that have died and passed into the earth. They preach that through the ways of the lowly insects, they will be brought closer to the glory of the Star Emperor. The sigil of the Blessed Wormlings is segmented, much like the earth-crawling insects they emulate. So it's, it's again, it's that kind of standard worm form, but it's broken into segments. It's kind of rusted. Looks pretty neat. All right. That brings us to the last one. And the quote that I read earlier actually comes from this cult. So this is the occult Hydric. For hundreds of years, this organization has sent broods of Pierstein gene stealers from the dockyards of Vigilance Quadrex. While many might be destroyed or lost, many more have taken a foothold and settled the cult Hydric anew on dozens of worlds across the Segmentum Pacificus. To attack one such cult splinter is to kick the hive of the entire cult, with the war leaders of these various worlds pulling together to retaliate when the time comes. The many-headed worm form of the cult Hydric represents the many cells that make up the greater body. So in this case, it's that worm form joined together. It's three of them. 
but it's neat. This is definitely the, this is the Hydra. Hydra. Yeah. Yeah. You cut off one head, two more. (laughs) What does he say? Cut off. Yeah. It's what he says. You cut off one head, two more will rise up to take its place. Yeah. With those lesser known cults, that'll wrap us up for our coverage on Gene Steeler cults, but don't worry. We do have some more lore to dip our claws into as Marky will be back with his Gene Steeler lore in our next episode. Um, this definitely inspired the shit out of me. I think this is the most inspiring lore series that we've done so far. And not that I haven't liked the other factions that we've covered. I've liked all of them, but I have an orc army and I have an Eldari army and I used to have an Imperial guard army. So I think this one's new for you. Yeah, I think there's some of that, but I, I also think like, I never really dipped that deep into gene stealer cults. Like, I like Tyranids, and I like the look of some of the Gene Steeler cult stuff, but I had kind of been like a little hesitant to get into them. Now I'm super deep. This is Marky's fault. Yeah, I love them, man. They they definitely uh, they crept their way into my heart. <laughs> they infected you. Yeah, piece by piece. Right in the ass. <laughs> I think one of the other main reasons that I love this faction is just the sheer fucking amount of like actual grim dark and actual horror that's packed into it the the tyranids are the same there is a lot of horror packed into them and i would i would argue that another dark eldar are the same but they're all different flavors of horror Um, right everything that we've covered so far has been a little bit more on the noble side of of horror like the people that you kind of root for the people that in certain circumstances you root for obviously you know Warhammer 40k is designed so that nobody's a good guy and you're not supposed to root for anybody, but you can find redeeming Eldari, you can find redeeming guardsmen, and like orcs are fun, they're silly, they're definitely the silly army. Um, they can also be super horrible, but they're they're oh yeah, they're the soccer hooligans. So, and the Gene Stealers are very much that first like full toe in the deep end of what is horror and why horror fiction exists. Speaking of that, if you guys have any of your own Gene Stealer lore or you have any questions about Gene Stealers, maybe there's something else that you want us to tackle that isn't covered in the lore, some other um, tin hat, tin tin foil conspiracy theory, 40K conspiracy theory, uh, agenda theory you want us to hit, reach out to us by email at underthehiveofmadness at gmail.com or jimdarkgaming at gmail.com. You can also get involved with us by becoming members of our Discord community. We love to share in your homebrew lore, answer questions, and much, much more. We've got several people who talk to us about developing their own lore. We have a lot of community lore that we're starting to generate. In fact, I've started to call it UHM lore because it's getting to the point where there's enough of it that I, I have to specify when somebody asks me a question. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not official GW lore. That's our lore. That's yeah. our podcasts, Lord. That's, That's our like when we go into, universe. into weird details that are like super <laughs> yeah. obscure, like that just yeah. aren't part of the bigger. Yeah, definitely. But Warhammer 40k is set up that way. It's set up for you to go play in your own corner of the sandbox. Yeah, they they intentionally made the universe so big and varied that it left room for that. So you don't just have to email us, although it's a little bit e- easier for us if you do e- email us lore and spooky tales, but you can get in touch with us with those stuff through Discord. We also play a lot of video games on Discord, and we're all on Discord pretty regularly, so this is a, a pretty good time to get involved because you can actually directly communicate with us. 
You can also find us on our website or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as I've got my own TikTok. We have links to everything in our show notes to make it super easy for you guys to find. On top of that, we are always looking to expand our web presence and just get you guys access to stuff in faster and better ways. We've got a lot of photos of our own armies that I promise are going up on the website eventually. So we're a do-it-yourself organization. If one of the four of us isn't working on it, it doesn't get worked on. So please bear with us, especially as we're trying to grow. And we, we do have an editor who is very willing to help us out, which is awesome. So shout outs to Ickbard, who helps us edit some of our content. If you want to help us grow and reach milestones, not only when it comes to technology, but when it comes to merchandising stuff that we want to develop and potentially get listed for sale and some other stuff, as well as some future content, you can join us at www.patreon.com slash under the hive of madness. As I mentioned earlier, all patrons get access to our painting contest. You don't have to participate, but you have the ability to participate. That's at our lowest level, our $3 tier. We do that four times a year, and we do send out a trophy. You also get access to video versions of the podcast. And generally speaking, I've got Google up, and I'm going through some different images that relate to the topic we're talking about. Or I put in some slideshow images and some GIFs and some overlays to just kind of Get a little bit more of a visual experience for you guys. We also have several other things that are available over there, including voting for potential future podcast topics, helping us kind of decide which path we're taking throughout our season, and other things like some art assets and some role-playing game assets that we are currently developing for use by our community. We definitely appreciate every single one of you guys. Well, gents... Those last cannons outside don't seem to be stopping the uh, impressive rate of fire that they're giving from the roof of the hangnail. So maybe I was wrong, and maybe the cult doesn't respect the rules of the hangnail. I'm kind of feeling a little naked. I mean, I didn't bring guns today because we're not supposed to bring guns, you know? I'm kind of feeling a little hot. See, <laughs> see, I didn't bring guns. I just have a, a gun servitor. See, he carries the gun. I don't have to. Uh, is he uh, outside or is that's he That's mean to call Tom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Beast's nickname is Kev Servitor. His weapon servitor, Tom. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Weapon servitor T0M. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for today's coverage of the cult's goings-ons. Uh, I'm going to try to drown what little knowledge I did gain from that news report in this fungi beer that I'm going to drink. It is pretty damn cold. They do say it's the coldest in the hive, although we are on a massive glacier, so I'm not sure what that <laughs> means. Have you been outside lately? I heard it's cold. <laughs> uh, depends on what side of the hive you're on. Bringing you only the best and crustiest of sump news, we are 665.66UHMR ChemRat Radio, covering everything going on from the spires right on down to the lowest levels of the Underhive. Join us next time, same ratty-ass attitude, same ratty-ass vox frequency. Remember, when the Church of the Star Kindred come to your door with the newest issue of the Space Tower, 
They're not trying to convince you to give up your birthday. They're trying to recruit you into a cult that may or may not be run by a four-armed emperor. I just tell them I don't speak low gothic. I don't speak low gothic. All right.